Hello, and welcome to Why We Do the Work, a couple of lifelong friends and working moms discussing the realities of childhood cancer. I'm Arjuri. And I'm Lori. This is a podcast about cancer, childhood cancer in particular, and I just want to give a trigger warning because of that. So we are going to be talking about some things that are pretty intense in this episode um, and further episodes as well. I will plan on giving a trigger warning for all of those just so that we don't trigger anybody. We, we're going to be talking about what some of our triggers are and what childhood cancer was like in our lives and is like in our lives. So there'll probably be pauses here and there um, while one or the other of us take the reins if it gets too hard. So if things start to get flubbled up just a little bit, it's because this is an intense subject that we're talking about. So trigger warning. So, Lori, 1986. What happened in 1986? Well, Audrey, it's been a long, long, long time um, that we've been friends. And the fact that we have children who were diagnosed with the same cancer after uh, over 30 years of friendship seems a little bit more than a coincidence. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's really... It's weird. The both of us will will always be saying, can you believe our kids had cancer? Can you believe they have cancer? Before we get going a little bit further into this, both kids are cancer-free. And we're here because of the fact that my daughter, Zion, got sick with cancer. Was it about, about a year after? A year and a half, I think. Yeah, about a year and a half after Lori's, your son, Simon, was diagnosed with the same cancer, which is Hodgkin's lymphoma. And Hodgkin's lymphoma is a cancer of the the lymphatic system. And it's a rare cancer in kids. Um, Children don't usually get uh, Hodgkin's lymphoma. And so the fact that both of our children had that in the first place was weird, especially having it in the same spot was weird. And at the same age, at the same age, you know, it was essentially, it was, um, it was a shock to both of us. It was like, wait, what? How did Simon has it too? So obviously we want to talk about that. We want to make it known that we that we are advocating for folks out there who have experienced childhood cancer due to environmental and industrial pollution. Or who are um, going through a new diagnosis and maybe looking for some answers, trying to understand what what happened, what in the environment may have led to a diagnosis. Yeah. Yeah. So 1986, uh, you and I met, it was at Lincoln Middle School, which when I was just down in Texas, Lincoln Middle School is all boarded up now. I saw that. I saw that. That's really, really devastating because that was a historical landmark, I think, for that area. Mm -hmm. Also a very old building when we were in it. So yeah, this is now Fast forward 30, 30 some, some years. years. Yeah, it, it was sad to see it like that. So we met at Lincoln Middle School in Abilene, Texas. We were 12 years old. And I don't remember how I got to school. I must have walked. You maybe walked too. But we were going to eighth grade orientation. Right. Very first day. Very first day. And somehow we I was standing behind you. And you have bright, bright 
red hair. It was a lot brighter than. (laughs) So I saw this bright red hair and, you know, I, I'll get into a little bit about what I used to do for work before I started working at Beyond Toxics, but I've always had a love of hair and I don't think I had ever seen anybody with such bright red hair before. I honestly don't think that I had ever seen that. So I was like, you touched wow. it. You, you pulled my hair. I don't feel like I pulled it. We've talked about this. Why? I'm blocking it out. I guess I'm blocking it, was, it out. It wasn't, a, it wasn't like a like hard tug, but I remember Jeez. specifically that you were like, oh my gosh, what made me think I could do that to somebody I didn't even know? So, it worked. Yeah. It, well, we ended up like being best friends and came to find out we had every single class together except for one. I remember, I can remember anytime you were absent, it was like a, a big <laughs> void for me because I didn't know anybody at that school and we were always friends. We were friends from the day we met and from the start. We never had to discuss whether or not we were best friends or if we were going to see each other again or talk. We just hit it off. So immediately we, we walked home from school together. I think that day. And every day following. <laughs> how and how convenient was it that we lived like blocks, a few blocks from away each from each other? So it was like, okay, we met at school, Lincoln Middle School, Adelaide, Texas, bright red hair, lived up the street from each other, and just were fast friends from there. Right. So we spent pretty much every single day hanging out, and <laughs> and that and that continued. Um, I mean, I moved away from Texas shortly, year. shortly thereafter. Um, my family moved to Oregon and that was it. I mean, I, you and I, we never, we never acted like we weren't friends. Like there was never a time that we were like, oh, well, I guess I'm not going to see Archie again. Or you, <laughs> we were, we were on the phone with each other. We yeah. were planning for you, planning the whole time, planning for you to come to Oregon the whole time. And I did, you know, I, we had only known each other for like a year and just stayed in contact with letters and phone calls. Cause there was no email or, uh, text messages or, or FaceTime. There was none of that. So no social media, it's pretty incredible that we were able to keep our friendship going for so long with none of those things that made it easy. Like we had to work to make sure that we were able to still talk to each other once you moved away. Good old so, fashioned letters and yep. long distance phone calls. Yep. So when I moved out this way in 1993, I was 19 years old, almost 20. Very first time leaving home at all, especially leaving by myself. I had never done anything like that that was a really really brave and bold thing for me to do to ride the greyhound bus all the way from Abilene Texas all by myself was pretty remarkable and when I look back and I think about that because now Elisha is the age that I was when I moved out Zion's the Elisha you know where Zion's brother he was the age that I was when I moved out and Zion right now is the age that I was when I had my own apartment in Abilene and I'm thinking, like, I can't imagine Zion being in an apartment by herself right, right now. Right. And maybe times were just different back then. You we, know? we were pretty independent. And I remember you saying from um, really early on, one of the first times that I came to your house, you told me, you see, you see how my family is? I'm not like this. 
I'm not going to be like this. This is not how I'm going to turn out. I want a different life than this. And that stuck with me. I knew, I knew from that time you were different and you wanted a different life and that you would make your own, you were going to blaze your own trail. And I didn't know what that would look like because I was too young to know really that, you know, how significant it was. But looking back, I see the things that you did were remarkable. Being black and coming to Eugene. A um, non-black place, usually. Not not as much now, but definitely mm-hmm. back then. This was pretty significant. Yeah, it was it was a culture shock, for sure. It was like, wait a minute. I think we went to the country fair. <laughs> Soon after I got there, uh, we went to the country fair, which, you know, it's out in Veneta. and has all the fun stuff, and people are going around. And um, there, at this time, this time that we went to the country fair, everybody was naked. There was a lot of people, well, not everybody, but there were a lot of people. There was a lot of stuff going on at the country fair that I had never seen before. So yeah, the culture shock was real. We were working together, always together. From there, we continued. We we always lived together. We would be (laughs) in and out of relationships with boyfriends and it didn't matter. We still would find a house together and um, primarily West Eugene, almost always West yeah, Eugene. Much. That was our spot. That's the spot. West Eugene. That's, you know, we started living in West Eugene, had kids out that way and, you know, raised our families and really enjoyed living in that area because it was such a laid back area. Everybody there, nobody had like superiority complex. You know, it's a very low income BIPOC community and just really laid back and, and, accepting and the housing was cheaper out in West Eugene. Um, we never par- purchased a house out that way, but there's a lot of folks that buy their houses there. They're forever houses because it's affordable. Right. So um, I just want to ask you because I mean, I might seem like an idiot, but just what's BIPOC? Cause we never talked about, oh! we never talked about living. <laughs> I mean, in our perception, this was, this was where we fit in. This was the, this was the folk living that we, yeah that we needed and wanted at that time because we were low income. We were just teenagers. And even after we were new parents, we were still living in relatively low income or lower middle income um, neighborhoods like um, over there by Garfield and West 11th and Uh West 18th and West 14th. (laughs) Always West. I lived on West West 22nd at some point. Um, BIPOC is Black, Indigenous, and People of Color. Oh, okay. So we're just talking about lower income and uh, minorities, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that's where and how we ended up in West Eugene, just, just going all around and living together and having kids and ended up having a child just months apart. Like not, not five two, months, five, yeah, months, five apart. months apart, which was not planned. Had we... I'm surprised that we never planned to have a baby at the same time. Well, I think we had, we had planned on it, but we just didn't, I mean, we, we didn't plan it with our spouses or our partners, but, yeah, but between ourselves, we knew that we wanted to raise our children together and they were, they were, I mean, our kids are bigger now, but all through their, their whole lives. years, infant, I mean, we have pictures from every stage of <laughs> childhood and our children playing together like cousins. Yeah. Your auntie, I'm auntie, they're cousins. And that's just how it was. That's how we raised our kids and our families were really close and, 
and we were close and it's, we're a good example to our kids to see what type of friendship you can have. It's a rarity. Everybody's always searching for this type of friendship. I know and we're very lucky that we found it, but I think showing our kids the stick to it right. about a, fr- about a friendship kind of showed them that they can stick to it with anything. I think that we were good examples just living. The one thing that we definitely never planned on sharing was a cancer diagnosis. We wanted to let everybody know how close we are so that this is not just, okay, well, they got, their kids got cancer, big deal. You know, they both, they both got cancer at the same time. That's, you know, whatever. Not that people don't care, but it is definitely it's not an anomaly. So it's, it's something, it's a coincidence that was so profound that we feel it deserves a little bit more acknowledgement or in some ways more research to understand how is this possible? How is a coincidence this? I mean, it's pretty bizarre. It's like as if one of us won the lottery and then the other one won the exact same lottery for the exact same amount. I mean, it's it's really not the type of thing that we would ever expect to have shared. And in our friendship, we've shared a lot of things and had a lot of things happen the same in the same time in our lives and things that we've made happen. But this one we didn't make happen, or at least not to our knowledge. And so to to look at that and say, what are some of the factors that contributed to that? What in our environment were our children exposed to that? may have led to this diagnosis. Yeah. Yeah. So I jumped right in. I had gotten a message from a woman whose child had died of leukemia. And it was a time right when Zion was diagnosed with with Hodgkin's lymphoma. And I can't remember how I let everybody know. It might have been Facebook. I don't really remember. But she reached out to me and gave it her daughter passed away from leukemia. And she had started a thing called an or- the Orange Ribbon Foundation. And that is where her daughter had saw that there were so many things that her mom was missing and needing and forgetting when she went up to the hospital and she could see that that was stressful. So she reached out to me straight away and asked if I would be interested in having a, a gift basket. She wanted to do this because it was a legacy of her daughter. Um, and I said, of course. And so that sparked an online friendship from that, from that point. And so she, you know, we corresponded back and forth and she reached out to me again back in 2018, like right after Zion got diagnosed, she reached out to me and was telling me about J.H. Baxter. I didn't care about what J.H. Baxter was, you know, at that time. And it wasn't until, was not until Simon got diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma that made me go, what? Right. Wait a minute. That is not it's too close to home. Too too many similarities and too um, too obvious for us to look past the fact that there were two diagnoses and yeah. there have to be some explanations out there in relationship to our environment. Yeah, yeah. So I jumped right in. I jumped right into I want to know what happened mode, and so I started researching. And I I remembered that message when. Simon got diagnosed. I remembered that message and I went back and I looked through our messages and I, I read it and I was like, whoa, J.H. Baxter, I'm going to go look and see exactly what this place is. Because if she's telling me that she thinks it made her daughter sick, 
then maybe I need to see if it's, if it's made our kids sick. So I got online and I was in research mode and I, I had been in research mode because I was doing my ancestry. So I was already like looking up J.H. Baxter and seeing all the different finds that they got and seeing that the, the uh, equipment that they used. And I, I learned what the equipment was that they used. And I Googled words to see what these chemicals were and how they were pronounced so that when I got to a space where I would have to be doing what, what we're doing now, I wanted to be able to pronounce these words. I wanted to be able to not sound like I didn't know what I was talking about. Well, you were you were self-educating. And at the same time, I started doing some some research too with the information that you were sharing with me. And from, of course, uh, at that time, Simon had just started chemotherapy. And so uh, I was... I was pretty consumed with being in an active battle with cancer and being supportive of Simon. But at the same time, I started reading about how this wood treatment plant was um, polluting the environment and what some of the carcinogens were that our children were exposed to, that other people's children are exposed to, and then trying to understand how, how this relates to us, how it relates to other people in that neighborhood who are still living in that neighborhood and what that meant. I mean, were our kids' diagnoses a direct result of what they were exposed to in their environment? I think so. Yeah, 100%. I have absolutely no doubts. One of the things that I read right off the bat was about Beyond Toxics and about Lisa's involvement in trying to bring forth some of the some of the toxins and some of the um, detriment of what was going into the environment a long time ago, mm-hmm. back when our kids were little, actually. And um, and then for you to start being more interested and to take a role within that within that fellowship, I mean, I think that was really a big step for you and also really exemplifying what we needed to do as far as why we do the work. Mm-hmm. It, this was your work. I mean, this is your work. But one of the things that I started to read and that I was bringing to your attention was the number of deaths that had occurred uh, within the company mm-hmm. that, ha- that were happening you know, to their employees um, at J.H. Baxter, that there were a lot of people who had either been diagnosed with a cancer or had died of cancer throughout the years. Yeah. So Lisa reached out to me. Lisa is the executive director of Beyond Toxics. And when she reached out to me, I had been posting social media and I had like poison emojis and look what this place is doing on a daily basis because I wanted to let people know what I was finding out. And I wanted somebody to help me know that what I was thinking was happening was actually really happening. So I put all these things on Facebook. Lisa reached out to me through messenger and wanted to talk to me. And that's, it just like, spread like wildfire after that. Like I met her and she saw how interested I was and saw the story of me and you and how abnormal that was. And she, I started working with Beyond Toxics, very, very limited amount of, of hours. And I enjoyed that because I was, I, I like, I like to be at home. So I, you know, I, I was already doing what Lisa had asked me to do as a job. And so as things started to progress with Beyond Toxics, I mean, 
with J.H. Baxter and, and all that, my role has expanded into something that I never had imagined I would be. Can you believe I'm like in these meetings and I'm I'm talking to people and I'm standing up and I'm public speaking and I'm <laughs> it's hard to believe because where you were coming from as a as a stylist, a beautician, um, no, that I did not imagine my wildest dreams. However, you had a really good motivation for this to be your for this to be your baby, for this to be um something that you would really strive to know more about and to educate others about. And it makes sense because with two diagnoses between our families, we we needed some answers and we knew that something wasn't right. We didn't really understand the depth of where did that come from or why would this affect both of our children until Simon was diagnosed. And mm -hmm. then you know, you'd said to me, doesn't this make you mad? Well, <laughs> at that time, not really, because I was really focused on trying to get this mm -hmm. kid healed. And, you know, now that he's cancer free, I feel more passionate about um, understanding and helping others understand what toxins can be related to cancer and cancer diagnoses and how those things in our community are being regulated. I mean, I'm still mad. I know you're mad now. I was mad then. I'm still mad because it's unavoid. I mean, it's, it was avoidable. They didn't have to be poisoned like that. That facility and the facilities surrounding that area I'm not saying that all of them are doing what J.H. Baxter is doing. I'm sure there's some out there that are following the regulations as they should, but there are 30 some industrial facilities out there. So I'm not, I'm not saying that everybody's doing bad, but um, it does make me mad and it makes me wonder what is going on, uh, you know, in these other places. And I would want somebody to tell me the way that we're speaking out. I would want somebody to do that for me. and. You know, the, it's it's home, and it it's that's where we lived. That's where we played. That's where our kids played in the sprinkler. That's where we saw these industrial facilities. And I know that I was not thinking about what they were putting out at all. I was just like, okay, well, that's where that's that's happening. Industrial area, yeah, industrial area. Calling it the industrial area lightly, right. you know, like uh, at that time when we were calling it that, I was just like, okay, well industrial area. That's just where we live. And there's smokestacks and there's these giant facilities. And I was never, ever, ever thinking about what they could have been putting out. Well, and looking at that now from the perspective that we're looking at it now, uh, J.H. Baxter is one that is a really obvious threat because J.H. Yeah. Baxter is one that most people in that neighborhood will agree is mostly responsible for those really bad smells in the air, um, lingering smells that lasted for days and weeks at a time and would maybe let up for a short time. And then um, again, you know, and um, pools of questionable uh, water, polluted water and or oils, chemical substances that we didn't know what they were or still don't entirely know what they are. Those things weren't, they weren't important to us. We didn't, we, we lived in that area, yes, like many other people, and probably, you know, not a real balance with the rest of the community. I mean, the people that were living over in East Eugene aren't exposed in the way mm -hmm. that our kids were exposed. And if you look at the community, you see that uh, the socioeconomic community over there is, you know, you're looking at people who um, are wealthy. 
mm-hmm. and people who can afford to live in areas that are not polluted. Um, we weren't on that side of it. And so if this is the cost, if this is what we, you know, this is what we have to pay, mm-hmm. it, it's not fair. And somebody needs to speak up about it. Somebody needs to bring that to light, I think. Yeah. I'm really happy that we're here, you know, because it's not just it, we are from that community. And I think that that shows, um, even though we both don't live down in West Eugene anymore, for us to be extending ourselves in this way, I think it shows the community, wow, okay, we really can do something about this. We really, you know, here's this lady who, she didn't go to school for any of this. I make sure to tell people that they're like, here, I'm like, I'm just a mom that cares. I didn't go to school for environmental justice or environmental science or any of that. I am just a mommy that cared and you're just a mommy that cared. And so I think that being from that community and being mothers and having children that have had a diagnosis of cancer, luckily, and we're fully blessed that they were able to come out on the other side of that. But there are so many families, there's so many Zions and Simons that are out that way. And the other, our other children, there's so many people that are out that way that don't know that go around how we were, you know, they smell the smell, smell the smell, but everybody's just going around, like not really. Well, now they're thinking about it more because JH Baxter is like in the forefront and, and they're closed <laughs> and they're closed. Do you remember when we went and we were doing the uh, video right after JH Baxter closed and we were doing the video right there yes. in front of them. And at what, when we were going to meet uh, Lisa, we had gone down there to, uh, record this video af- after J.H. Baxter had closed and I didn't know exactly where we were going and I drove right into <laughs> J.H. Baxter. Right. And that I was, drove I mean, right that into was, the parking lot. And so... That we, was revealing in itself. But yeah. Also, you know, for me personally, we got out of the car, you met Lisa and I walked the other direction with um, my youngest, Savannah, and we just walked, uh, you know, Maybe, just up and, the way. Yeah, just maybe a sixteenth of a mile. I mean, not any not any distance at all down the little bike path and found ourselves standing right in front of the house where Simon was in childcare, um, his babysitter for several years when I was working in the hotels was right there. I mean, with you can see JH JH Baxter from their front door. So, you know, JH Baxter was not only a real obvious place to look at as far as what, you know, where these toxins in the environment were coming from, but also something that was relative to us and to our living because your house was right up the street. And then here's Simon spending, you know, 40 some hours a week Mm -hmm. in that exact location. I mean, just right there. So that was to me, you know, any questions that I had about whether or not this was applicable to you or to me, were pretty much nixed right there. I mean, I knew right then this this plant, when it was in full operation and our kids were living here right underneath its toxins, had a really strong impact on our kids' diagnoses. I, I'm confident. In that. Oh, gosh, 100%. 100%. And when we were down there and doing the video and we took pictures, and I was so proud of you for allowing pictures to happen, I remember Lisa saying, like she said something like, take a deep breath to me or do you smell anything? And I didn't. And it was so nice to see families walking around outside on the bike path and 
and just living their lives. It was, it felt so good to know that they weren't breathing in the emissions from J.H. Baxter. And the air was clearly different. For the first time in over a hundred years. Yeah. For the first time in over a hundred years, the fact that you were a part of the team that, that brought that to a head to where, you know, they were being regulated in a way that probably should have been happening for a long time. Um, but you stuck with it and your team stuck with it and making those, making those changes didn't come easily. They were changes that were on the way for a long time, but to come to fruition, um, was really definitely a big sign to me that you're in the right place. You're doing the right work and that we're really lucky to be a part of it. Uh, at the same time, unfortunately, what brought us to that place is, you know, cancer diagnosis is that we couldn't ignore. And then, you know, when we look at the disparity of the people that are being exposed, for the people that live in that community, some may be persons of color, some may be uh, Caucasian. It doesn't matter because they're what they share in common is mostly lower middle income mm-hmm. or lower income. And they're the ones that are being exposed the most to these toxins. So, you know, as cancer is explored and as um, the environmental toxins are explored, that's really important that we reach out to those communities and let those people know, hey, you have a voice and your voice may not be heard the first time you speak up, but you can make a difference. Like, I mean, you're making a difference. Yeah. It, you know, I, I appreciate you saying that. I feel like I'm in the right place and being on a team, not just with, with my job, not just with Beyond Toxics, but being on a team with the community has been so rewarding because I know that I'm helping them understand that we're helping them understand what they're being exposed to and that they have the ability to help do something about it. It's environmental racism. So, you know, West Eugene has been sort of just tucked away, like swept under the rug. And that's not fair because it's people. Just because there are industrial facilities out there does not mean that the industrial facilities own that neighborhood. The neighborhood belongs to the community. And what we want to do why we do the work is that we want to help make sure that those families get the rights that they deserve and that they know that they can call the mayor and have a meeting with them, with her, or they can call their city councilors and have a meeting, or they can send an email and stress their concerns. And you know what? The community did that. Once we showed them, once they knew that they could do that, because I didn't know that you could just oh write an, a casual email to the mayor. May I have a visit with you to talk about the, com- the community and the and pollution? I didn't know that you could do that. So seeing the community step up and do that has been so rewarding and s- makes me so happy to know that there's we're saving lives. Well, and the community needed someone who was passionate to lead them in that direction as well. And that's something that you're... Um, organization is doing and um, has done, but lots of communities, not just West Eugene. Um, this is the case. Industrial areas have elementary schools in them. They have high schools in them. They have residences within those areas who are also exposed to those toxins in different communities. And for the most part, it, there is a disparity in the mm-hmm. area of exposure. Um, our children being diagnosed with cancer, we think is 
directly related to those exposures. And I think that's important for us to be able to say, hey, we're, this, is what it, this is what we believe contributed to our kids' diagnoses, and this is what we're doing about it. What really, really, really shines a light on what's going on in West Eugene is that because of the work of Beyond Toxics and the community, we were able to get um, the OHA to do a, I don't want to say a survey, but what, what they did was they did a study to see if there was a cancer cluster there in Eugene, in West Eugene. And they discovered not only higher cases of lung cancer, but also of Hodgkin's lymphoma. Hodgkin's lymphoma is not just a regular cancer. You don't just, I mean, not that any cancer is regular, but it's not as prevalent as breast cancer. You know, it's, it's not a genetic disease. And to have there be a cluster and have the, that agency say, yeah, you know what? You're right. There, there is something going on out there. I think that the, the point of what we're discussing with each other is the same thing as what we as the point that we want to bring out is that we can take our experience and hopefully make it relatable or maybe it will be relatable to other people who have had to deal with a cancer diagnosis or who have had a person who's had cancer in their lives to be able to look more closely at what the what the causes of that are and what we can like what you're saying what we can do about it what how we can take the reins and help make changes in the community and for some people, like myself, in the middle of trying to um, help your loved one recover from cancer, you may not be in a position that you can make those changes, but you can support someone who is. Mm -hmm. And and what what we want to do is make sure that there there's a safe space. You know, somebody that understands what it's like to hear the words, well, your child has cancer. We know what that feels like. And to know what that feels like puts this, like, it, it opens my heart in a way that I'm like, okay, I would want somebody to tell me that these two ladies had, their kids had cancer. I would want to know that because then that's going to show me, oh, wow, there is something going on out there. I would want to know. We've said that too, that we, were, that we wish that we knew us <laughs> yes. when, we, when our kids were diagnosed with cancer. And, and it's true because there are parts of it that feel really isolated and you feel really lonely and you may feel like you don't know how you're ever going to come out from, um, from the experience or, you know, the words cancer free seemed really distant uh, a lot of times during Zion's fight. And, you know, for us now to say our kids are cancer free is huge triumph, but you know, for people who are just experiencing a new diagnosis, to have um, somebody validate and give some normalcy to some of the feelings and emotions, anger and confusion that go with that, I think is, is really vital because I know for myself, I would be up really late at night and reading everything I could get my hands on, some of it relevant and some of it irrelevant. But you know, for people who are in that searching phase and trying to make sense of what happened or what is happening, I think that um, the experience that we had and the knowledge that we've gained may be useful. Oh, 100%. I didn't look for a podcast like this.
was, you know, I, I wasn't even listening to podcasts before the pandemic. The pandemic <laughs> made me like get my AirPods in and, and listen to podcasts. So now what I've tried to do is kind of try to find a podcast that's, that's like this. You know, we've looked up so many that just, they seemed really medicinal. And there's, we don't need more medicine. We need heart medicine. <laughs> well, and, you know, people medicine, clinical. impact. We need impact medicine. Clinical um, definitions and clinical explanations are not always well understood by by regular people. <laughs> well, and you're not you're not thinking about it when your kids are in the throes of it, right? You're not you're not thinking about it. You're thinking about getting your child better. Well, and I, something I'm just going to share this. I think I probably shared it with you, but it just keeps coming to the forefront of my mind right now. It was when Zion was in the hospital and she was having her stem cell transplant. And and I think we'll get more into the stem cell transplant in the, the next episode. But she was in the hospital up at Dornbecker Children's Hospital in Portland and in Portland, Oregon. And she was she was asleep at this point. And the only time you could really go out because we were isolated in her room, the only time that we could go out of the room was in the night when everybody was asleep. And she could even go out for a little bit. And in the beginning of of the stem cell transplant. She did. She walked the laps and did all that. But towards towards when it was really, really happening, she stopped doing that. But I still would go out into the hallway just just for a minute, just to get, you know, out of out of that for just a second and get some headspace. And I saw this guy come out of the room that was next door to me. And it's making me want to cry thinking about it. But I saw him come out and it was just as I was coming out of the door. And I don't know if it was a brother or a friend or cousin or who, whoever it was that was comforting this gentleman that was coming out of the room. And he just looked so weak and, and this friend was holding him up and he just said, man, he's like, I'm hurting more than I've ever hurt. I feel so weak right now. And I looked at him. I didn't smile because you're not going to smile right then when somebody's saying that. I just gave him a look like, I know, I know how you're feeling. And I felt so happy for him to have that person. But it touched me in a way that I was like, I am surrounded right now by people who know what I'm feeling. And that was comforting to me. And I think that I gave comfort to that, to him, to see that. Someone else understood. Yeah. And that he didn't have to mask how he was feeling because he was in an area where you could do that, where you could let down and feel like you're around people that understand you. And, you know, it's, it, it, it was, it was rough. It was rough to see him like that. But it was profound in your experience because it's something that you are still looking back on. And there are people who are in the very beginning of that process who may not feel like there's a support system and they may not feel like there are answers they may not feel like anyone else understands. So hopefully we can shed some light on that. Hopefully we can share some of our empathy and some of our um, our own trials, which have led us to where we are now um, with two kids that are cancer-free, thank God. <laughs> um, I think we've talked about this before, but it did, it started to feel normal in there, didn't it? Like it started to feel like out, side was foreign and inside of the hospital 
was where we were supposed to be, which it was, you know, we were supposed to be there in the hospital with our kids, but it felt like out the out, the outside world was foreign. Well, and I think um, your experience differed from mine a little because you spent um, some nights there. We did not, we were only on um, outpatient, so we didn't spend any nights there. Um, however, we were dealing with another very difficult reality, which is that um, Simon, my son, who was um, being treated with chemotherapy and then radiation, had two siblings who were left at home alone. And, you know, that in itself is a different trauma. And I think that's something we're going to discuss in an mm-hmm. upcoming episode. But mm-hmm. um, there, there's a whole different um, weight to that, which is that in order to care for the needs of my child who was suffering from cancer, I had to um, let leave my then um, three and 11-year-old to fend for themselves at home. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes that was eight hours or more because we spent you know, a full part of the day at the hospital. Um, and that, that was really, really hard on our family. Definitely has made us stronger in the long run, but it, it took a toll on us. And we'll we'll talk about the siblings. I think that's a very important um, topic to discuss because they do get kind of I don't want to say pushed aside, but there are I don't know. We're gonna we'll talk more about the siblings. I don't want to get too deep in that because it is going to be something that we discuss. But um, so like I was saying, it it felt weird out and it felt normal in, Mm -hmm. and I just, I want to be a space. I want us to be, I want this podcast, you know, that, um, we're doing with the untoxics with the, with my work. I want this to be a place where someone can go and it's recorded, you know? So if there's something that touches on somebody's heart or they're like, I really need to hear that, that again, to let me know that somebody understands it's recorded and they can go back and, and listen to it. And it can be, a it could be healing mm-hmm. working the way that I have. And with the, the organization that I'm with, with beyond toxics has been healing to me. I know that this is hard for you. I know that it is. And I want to recognize that because this is the first time that you've talked about it you know, out for anybody else to hear that. Mm-hmm. So I just want to, you know, I'll continue to thank you for that because it is important to hear your voice and the reason why we do the work. It's a, it's a part of the process and I'm, you know, I'm glad to contribute to that, but also I, it, it is also healing for me. Um, the way that I basically cope or am comforted is different maybe than some people. Um, it's more of an internal process and um, I have been reluctant to share and mm-hmm. I've been reluctant to um, report very much about Simon's illness or um, recovery. So this is giving me a safe space to do that. And hopefully there are some others who can relate to my experience as well. Yeah. There will be, there will be, I think this is going to be a really nice, a nice safe space for us and uh, have an opportunity to spread the word through our experiences. And I think that's powerful. We're going to start winding down. I don't want us to just 
rabble, rabble, rabble. We just want to let everybody to know who we are, why we're here, and then we'll get into the meat of it in further episodes. But we just wanted to jump in and make sure that uh, we introduce ourselves to the world. <laughs> Thanks for that. Yeah. So, so thank you everyone for joining us with um, here with Lori and myself on why we do the work. We appreciate you taking the time to listen to us and we hope that you will come back next week where we will be discussing in detail about how we think our children were able to cope with having cancer, having the diagnosis of cancer. So we're going to get in deep with that and we hope that you'll come join us.